Out front next, Hamas releasing new video of hostages as Israel finds the biggest tunnel network yet, and all eyes are on that growing number of attacks in the Red Sea. Also breaking tonight, Rudy Giuliani just hit with a new lawsuit, and it is from the same two election workers whom he's already on the hook to pay nearly $150 million. So the election worker's attorney will be out front, and he was hired by the Trump campaign to find voter fraud. He is speaking out tonight right here. What did he find? Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, Hamas releasing new hostage video. And this new video, which the Israeli Defense Forces call a criminal terror video, shows three elderly men pleading for their release. One of the men in the video is 84-year-old Amram Cooper. Now, I spoke to Cooper's son, Rotem, last month, shortly after his mother, who had also been kidnapped, was freed from Hamas. We know that my father is alive. You know, definitely, as uh, you know, uh, a week and two days ago, and he's is uninjured at that time, um, and he knows that she was released. And yet, he is still captive tonight. And this video comes at a very perilous moment. Just today, the CIA director William Burns met with Israeli and Qatari officials in an effort to try to free more hostages. There is hope that these talks could be constructive. I mean, we'll see. But the reality, of course, is, as the world saw this horrific event, right? The death of three hostages who were shot while raising white flags by Israeli forces. Their death underscoring the deadly risk endured by unarmed civilians in Gaza. Just today, the U.S. raising concerns about an Israeli sniper killing a mother and daughter outside a church in Gaza. Now, according to the church, the two were on the grounds of the Holy Family Parish in Gaza. They were walking to the sisters' convent when they were shot and killed by an Israeli sniper. Now, the IDF disputes whether anyone was killed, but today the Biden administration is stepping up pressure on Israel on the civilian front. The Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin traveling to Israel to tell Israeli leaders that protecting civilians is both a, quote, moral duty and a strategic imperative. The Biden administration wants to see Israel scale back its sprawling ground invasion. They want them to focus on precise missions, like rescuing hostages or destroying specific tunnels. And we do have something I want to share with you tonight on that, a new image of a tunnel tonight. So you're looking at this here, and you can see how wide it is. These images come from both the IDF and also Reuters journalists who were there to witness it. The tunnel spans two and a half miles. It reaches more than 160 feet underground, and it is equipped with electricity, ventilation, and communication systems. It goes incredibly close to the Israeli border and can be used for large forces to move, right? You can see this isn't a narrow thing at all. Its discovery comes as this war is spreading beyond Israel's borders. Another Iranian-funded militia, the Houthis today, claiming responsibility for an attack on a ship in the Red Sea. The USS Kearney quickly responding to the ship's distress call. But over the past two months, Houthi forces have been involved in a number of attacks along the Red Sea. Actual hijacking, drones, missile attacks on commercial ships. And all this is adding up now to a lot of ships rerouting taking longer to get where they're going to go, skipping the Suez Canal. These attacks are taking a toll on the whole world because 90% of the world's commerce moves by ship, 10% through the Suez Canal every day. Never mind things like oil and liquefied natural gas going through that, that passageway every second. Today, oil and natural gas prices spiking after British Petroleum said it would stop all shipments through the Red Sea because of these strikes. And we're going to have much more on these attacks in just a moment. I want to begin, though, with Will Ripley because he is out front live in Tel Aviv. And Will, today you were in southern Israel, just a few miles from Gaza. And what did you see? 
You know, Aaron, we were working most of the day within a stone's throw of the fence <clears throat> that divides Israel and Gaza, and you did not need a map to know when we were getting close to Gaza because there was a massive smoke plume that was rising up from that embattled area. And in fact, every few minutes as we were driving and then even louder on the ground, we heard very loud booms. This was the sound of outgoing Israeli artillery landing theoretically, presumably, on the people of Gaza, which makes you wonder what the conditions must be like for them there, both above and even below ground. Beneath the bombed-out rubble of Gaza, a massive underground labyrinth, newly released videos from the Israeli military claim to show the biggest Hamas tunnel in Gaza, two and a half miles long, up to 164 feet deep, with electricity, ventilation, and communication systems. The IDF says the tunnel is wide enough for a large vehicle, even a makeshift railroad. CNN cannot independently verify these videos, claiming to show what the IDF calls Hamas's strategic infrastructure, hundreds of terror tunnel shafts throughout the Gaza Strip, the IDF on a mission to locate and destroy dozens of attack tunnel routes. Hamas made the unverified claim of building more than 300 miles of tunnels under Gaza, tunnels for smuggling goods, launching attacks, storing rockets and ammunition, and Israel says Hamas command centers hidden beneath homes. Under this, this child's cot, not a baby's cot, you see a tunnel that was used for terror by Hamas. For three Israeli men held hostage in Gaza, a sign of desperation to the end. A white sheet and a plea for help, scrawled in Hebrew with leftover food. It reads, help, three hostages. A message either missed or ignored by Israeli soldiers who shot them down from a distance, all three shirtless, waving a white cloth. The men holed up in a building in the embattled Shijaya neighborhood of Gaza City. It's not clear if the hostages were abandoned or managed to escape before the fatal confrontation. The IDF admits the killings broke their rules of engagement, adding pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to secure the release of around 129 remaining hostages amid growing international calls for a ceasefire, a truce Israel says would only strengthen Hamas. As everyday people suffer on the streets of Gaza, social media images show crowds climbing on aid trucks, a sign of growing desperation amid a mounting humanitarian crisis as the number of dead in Gaza approaches a staggering new milestone of 20,000. That number just gives you chills, and yet that is the reality in Gaza right now, and also the reality, these new serious questions, Aaron, about how the IDF is operating on the ground. The fact that these three Israeli hostages came out shirtless, waving a white cloth, Two of them were shot instantly, but yet the third who went back, sought shelter, then came out again waving a white cloth and was shot and killed before the forces realized that he was in fact Israeli. You wonder what is happening to the countless civilians who are dying in Gaza, some of them face to face with the Israeli forces that are on the ground there, Aaron. Yes, we do. All right. Thank you very much. Will Ripley in Tel Aviv. Out front now, Daphne Richmond Barak. She's an expert on Hamas tunnels and the author of Underground Warfare, also an assistant professor at Israel's Reichman University. And I really appreciate your taking the time, Professor. So 
When you look at the passageways of the tunnels, now we're looking at them much wider than the tunnels we've seen before. You can see a lot of people walking through together as opposed to that very narrow uh, pathway of the other images that we've seen, even wide enough for vehicles. The IDF said even wide enough for, for a railroad, electricity, ventilation, communication, all of this. I mean, you spent a decade of your life studying uh, tunnels uh, like this, this entire system. What do you see here? I see a tunnel that looks a whole lot like the tunnels uh, that uh, North Korea has dug into South Korea. This is what I see. I see something of a much higher level of sophistication, which you describe much wider, more, uh, more resistant, stronger, um, dug not uh, just uh, by hand, but uh, actually with the use of some sophisticated civilian boring equipment. Um, so we're talking about tunnel warfare on a different level. And I see also, in addition to the influence of North Korea, kind of like the large tunnel um, enabling a massive invasion and infiltration into the country, I also see the hand of Iran here, um, which um, you know is a country that has deeply buried facilities. So it is very different from what Hamas has done with its underground uh, uh, tunnel network. But you can see that with Iran's help, Hamas has been able to dig deeper and better. And so, you know, the, you, you talk about the equipment, heavy boring equipment that would have been used. I know the IDF has shown what they say are some images of construction on this tunnel. Um, this tunnel, though, where it's located, we understand, according to the IDF, it ends um, just about a thousand feet uh, before uh, from the Israeli border a specific crossing, actually, the Erez crossing on the northern Israeli-Gaza border. So when you take into account what the tunnel is, when you talk about possibly being used for a large-scale invasion, and where you see it, then what does that layer of context tell you? So a couple of things. I, I think you put it very, very well. It, it raises a lot of questions. Um, the first thing that I can tell you is I am pretty sure that this is not the only tunnel of the like that Hamas has. Not all Hamas tunnels look like this one, but I presume that it has uh, a few, uh, a dozen, I would say, of such kind of like more heavy duty tunnels. Um, and now the question, the, the, the next question that comes up is, okay, so what did Hamas really intend to do with this tunnel, right? It's obviously a very important military asset that was well concealed and came very close to Israel's border. So I see two options. Number one, uh, this is a tunnel that was actually used, uh, or some portion of it, or um, some variation on this tunnel was used on October 7th itself to enable this massive uh, infiltration of over 3,000 Hamas fighters. I mean, these are some of the numbers. We, know, we don't know the exact number. We know it's, it's a very high number. And then to, for them to go on foot into Israel, um, I, find it, I would find it very surprising that it didn't use any kind of cross-border tunnel. So maybe this was one of those. But I think the, the, another order of, of questioning would come to say, okay, if this wasn't used, then what was Hamas's plan? Um, was it to use this tunnel and make it operational? Because it's obviously quasi-operational right now, and make it usable during the, the war, during the operation, to carry out another massive infiltration or more uh, kidnappings and more killings. Meaning it's either one of these two options. Um, because of exactly what you said, the, feature, the, the fact that it's coming so close to Israel's border, I see these two scenarios. And I presume that Israel will uncover in the coming days more such tunnels. All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you.
All right, as I mentioned earlier, the, the war is widening now. There's a growing number of Iranian-backed uh, Houthi attacks hitting the Red Sea, which obviously is a crucial shipping route uh, for, for everything. Anything you order on Amazon, oil, gas, you name it. Out front now, retired U.S. Army Major General James Spider Marks. And General, I appreciate your time. So looking at the map here, I mean, this has been a huge number of incidents since October 19th uh, when this really started at scale. Missiles, drones uh, coming from uh, Houthi missiles uh, intercepted in the Red Sea. What's actually going on here? Well, let's let's do a little bit of perspective first, if, if we can, Aaron. First of all, as you indicated, <clears throat> Suez is here, here, Red Sea, Bab el Mendeb, another choke point, and then you got the Gulf of Aden into the Indian Ocean here. There's about 1,300 miles between Yemen and Israel, and Yemen has done a, a swarm of drone attacks, as you've indicated, in the direction of the Eastern Mediterranean, going after. U.S. military vessels, naval vessels that were there. They were intercepted by other U.S. vessels that were in this area. But when you look at where the attacks have taken place, again, as you've described, it's essentially in this area right here. What's important to notice is that most of these attacks really affect the distribution of commercial traffic through the Suez and through the Red Sea into the uh, Gulf of Aden and into the Indian Ocean. That has a huge effect in terms of decisions that are being made in terms of what's being shipped where. This is clearly what Iran is trying to do. The Houthis are sponsored and funded by Iran. Iran now is taking a very strong strategic effort in order to move this fight into Gaza. And and that, again, is not surprising to any of us. So what we're seeing right now in terms of where the Houthis are, here's Yemen This portion of Yemen is this northern portion of Yemen, essentially, is where the Houthis are located. And if you go back to this map, again, this is the portion right here. So their ability to intercept with a degree of precision all this traffic is indicated right there for you as well. And and, and so, General, the the, the big question, of course, is as you see this, and maybe there's even going to be a need for more U.S. uh, support, how capable are the Houthis of of escalating this even more, of doing more damage. I mean, you know, they've been they've been aiming, but you could you you could see an absolutely horrific incident happening. Oh, absolutely. The the key thing is Yemen has the initiative. The Houthis have the initiative to fire when they want. They know when the traffic is coming through. I mean, all the passages that come through the Suez are declared. They obviously are in receipt of that information. It's not a mystery. So they know what's coming, when it's coming. They can prepare what they want to do. The key thing is, how do you get ahead of that? How can the United States and its partners in the region really put a punishing blow against the Houthis to eliminate, to disincentivize their activities that they're taking on right now? All right. Thank you very much, General Marks. Thank you. And next, breaking news. Rudy Giuliani just hit with a new lawsuit from the two women he's been ordered to pay nearly $150 million. And their attorney joins me next. This story just developing now. Also breaking, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, just signing a bill making it a crime to enter Texas illegally, meaning that migrants can now be arrested, thrown in jail, or deported at the hands of local law enforcement. And pushing back on Putin, soldiers and their families demanding that they be sent home from Ukraine. Takes a lot of courage to do that, and it's a story that you'll see first out front. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Breaking news, Rudy Giuliani sued again, just days after Giuliani was ordered to pay $150 million for defaming two Georgia election workers. The same election workers are suing Giuliani again. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, who reported, reported repeatedly, I'm sorry, threatened and intimidated as a result of Giuliani's lies about them, have asked a judge to permanently stop him from doing that. It all comes as there are growing concerns and questions over how Giuliani will pay the women any money given his deep debt and mounting legal problems. So Caitlin Polance has been working her sources on all of this today for Outfront. So Caitlin, you found so much out. I guess let's just start though about with this new lawsuit. What exactly does it do and is it likely to succeed? Well, Aaron, these two women, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, they are going to court because they want Rudy Giuliani not just to pay them, but to stop lying about them. That's what they're doing right now. They had initially won that verdict last Friday for $150 million because of statements Rudy Giuliani was making after the 2020 election. So before 2021, up until 2021, and then the lawsuit happened. Now, because Rudy Giuliani, in the middle of that trial, went outside the courthouse and doubled down on saying he had evidence that he believed that he was still telling the truth about these women, lies about what they had done after the election as absentee ballot count. They're going back to court and they're asking the judge, very likely the judge who oversaw his trial and is very familiar with everything Giuliani has been saying and doing related to this case, not showing up, losing in front of the jury, not taking the stand uh, in his own defense. That judge is very likely to be looking at this to this new lawsuit where they're seeking this court order. Here's one of the statements that Giuliani made on Steve Bannon's podcast mm-hmm. on Saturday, the day after the verdict about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and this situation. Many of those jurors see a single piece of evidence that many Americans have seen about how these women acted that would have been totally contrary to their unrebutted, uncorroborated testimony. He called it a sham of a trial. That's one of the statements that Giuliani made that these women are now going back to court to have the judge look at and to see if they can get an order from the judge saying, stop talking, stop talking about these women and lying about them. So I know that their attorneys are seeking to collect this money, right, from Giuliani as soon as possible. But as we all know, it's unclear if Giuliani has any money to, to, to pay them. You've been looking into this. What have you found? Well, they are moving very fast. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's legal team, they're a very skilled legal team that has done this in a lot of different aspects with defamation cases against right-wing figures. And they're moving fast to collect the money that they can. So Giuliani has been very public in the past several months saying he didn't even have money to fight this lawsuit that these two women had brought against him. And now he has 
a lot of debts. Um, I mean, it's it's very substantial, Aaron, when you look at them all stacked up. This $146 million, so just under that $150 million we were talking about, <clears throat> is going to be what he ultimately owes Moss and Freeman. He's also going to be owing them attorney's fees. There's other lawyers mm. that had worked for him that he owes $1.4 million to. They're suing him for that separately. And then he had all these unpaid phone bills that went through court. So he has a lot <clears throat> of debts. That said, even though he has debts, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are going to try and get at least some of the money they can out of him, at least a piece of it. And they are counting what he has. They have already identified he has a Manhattan co-op that he's trying to sell for more than $6 million. It hasn't sold yet. I just looked. But he also has a condo in South Florida. They're going to try and get grab at that. They're also going to try and get access to some of his bank accounts. And he said in court he has a new Newsmax contract with a streaming service. So how much he has still remains to be seen. How much he gives them also remains to be seen. Aaron? Right, right. And of course, so the order of creditors, I guess they want to move quickly to try to get ahead of uh, whether it's the phone company or the lawyers who are demanding fees, uh, all those other creditors. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Caitlin Polance, who's, who's breaking all those numbers down and doing all of that work. I, I want to bring in now John Langford, attorney for Ruby Freeman and Shea Massa. Those watching Friday would have seen you, John. So let me just start uh, there where Caitlin finished. Um, I know you're trying to basically circumvent an automatic 30-day delay to collect the money. You want to collect it as soon as you possibly can because you see those numbers. Someone has $57,000 of unpaid phone bills. That's not good for paying any portion of $146 million that he owes your clients. So how much money realistically do you think that Shay and Ruby are going to get? Well, thank you for having me back, Erin. Um, again, I think the jury is out on just how much money uh, Mr. Giuliani has. We asked for all of his records that would show exactly what he has, and he never produced that information. Um, so as you just heard, I mean, we know that he has a co-op in Manhattan. We know that he has a condo in Florida. It appears he may have other substantial assets. And we're looking at uh, all of those um, potential sources of money uh, to go after, to make sure that Mr. Giuliani pays what he rightly owes uh, to Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss. Can you give any other clarity when you say other substantial assets in addition to the condo in, in New York and Florida? And is there anything um, th that you may be aware of that you're able to share of substantial assets? Well, there are things we, that have been publicly reported. So, for instance, Donald Trump hosted at least one and maybe multiple fundraisers for Mr. Giuliani over the summer that were a million dollars ahead. Um, we don't know where that money went. We don't know where it's sitting. We know that he has a, um, a legal defense fund that he raises money to. And we are learning in real time of additional assets. And, and that stuff I can't yet talk about. All right. And I'm curious about that, though, of course, about those additional assets may be. So more to come on that. But soon after you won the verdict, Giuliani trashed the ruling as punitive and absurd. He denigrated the judge. He called the case unfair. And he went on to say this about your clients. All right, I'm sorry, we don't have the audio, John, but what he says there is these women who claim to be poor had a defense that must have cost eight to $10 million, at times 15 to 20 lawyers in the courtroom. This was not for them. They were the beneficiaries of what purports to be a fortune. He had gone on, you know, trashing the ruling, denigrating the judge. Um, how does all this play into your new lawsuit against Giuliani? What do you actually want to get out of that? Well, uh, as you just heard, the big difference between the new lawsuit and the lawsuit that just resulted in the verdict on Friday is that the new lawsuit seeks what's called an injunctive relief. Injunction is an order telling someone to stop doing something. And so in this new lawsuit, we're looking for an injunction that would stop Mr. Giuliani from making these specific kinds of defamatory claims about Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss. 
Um, and you might think, well, what's the utility of a court order? We know Mr. Giuliani doesn't seem to care about court orders. Um, well, the utility is, is significant. So among other things, an injunction can stop anyone who's in active uh, concert with Mr. Giuliani or any of his agents from um, violating a court injunction. In addition, an injunction it is something that other people cannot assist Mr. Giuliani in violating. And so there is real teeth to uh, mm. an injunction. Um, and we think it's going to be a powerful remedy. And we're very serious about making sure that Mr. Giuliani finally stops spreading his lies about Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss. John, thank you. I appreciate your time. And next, the software engineer who was hired by Trump to prove widespread voter fraud is now finally speaking out. He's going to tell you what he uncovered and tell you why he wants to share it now. Ken Block is my guest. And breaking news, you're looking at live pictures of a volcanic eruption in southwest Iceland. This is happening now, lava right now. As we're sitting here watching this, right, hundreds of feet into the air, imagine it. 4,000 people living nearby have been safely evacuated. Uh, but this is what's going on right now. We'll have more coming up. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, fake electors in court. Six pro-Trump fake electors pleading not guilty today in the state of Nevada. They face felony charges for signing on to a false slate of Trump electors in an effort to overturn the 2020 election. Now, one of the indicted is the state Republican chairman who just introduced Trump at his Nevada rally last night. Trump calling him and some of the other fake electors, quote, great patriots who are being treated very unfairly. Jessica Schneider begins our coverage out front. All right, electors, that is six votes certified for President Donald J. Trump. The six Nevada Republicans charged with serving as fake electors for the Trump campaign in 2020. Not guilty, Your Honor. In state court Monday morning, all pleading not guilty to two felonies, one count of forgery and one count of filing a false record. These signatures, central to the felonies each fake elector is now facing. Trump lost the state of Nevada in 2020 by 33,000 votes, with Joe Biden winning the state's six electoral votes. But these six defendants signed false certificates saying Trump won. Please, if you would turn that off, we have nothing to talk about, really. CNN's Kyung La tracked down some of the fake electors before they were charged. No comment on They all refused to talk. The leader of the alleged fake elector scheme is the current Nevada Republican Party chairman, Michael McDonald. Donald J. Trump! He's appeared at recent Trump rallies in the state, with Trump praising him over the weekend. A tremendous man, a tremendous guy, gets treated so unfairly, and uh, he loves this country and he loves this state. Nevada GOP chairman, Michael McDonald, he's a fantastic 
In court, McDonald joined all of his fellow defendants appearing remotely. At their arraignment, the judge set a trial date for early March, and prosecutors will hand over hard drives with evidence to their lawyers. Nevada is the third state to file criminal charges in connection with the Trump campaign's fake elector plot. The plot was carried out in seven states, and so far prosecutors in Michigan, Georgia, and Nevada have charged more than a dozen fake electors. Their lawyers, in court appearances and court filings, have insisted that their actions were meant to give Trump the ability to contest the results of the election in court. But state prosecutors argue their months-long investigations show it was purely intentional fraud. These charges are the culmination of a long and careful investigation into these actions taken in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And CNN has learned that several of the Nevada fake electors are still active in state politics. Two of them, Aaron, Jim Hindle and Jim DeGraffenreid, have been making their way across the state of Nevada, actually educating voters about the 2024 electoral process. That includes how the caucus process works. And when CNN asked Jim Hindle about that irony of fake electors educating voters about the process, Aaron, he declined to comment. Mm. All right, Jessica, thank you very much. And this fake elector scheme, as it was taking shape, Team Trump was aggressively trying to prove widespread voter fraud over and over in state after state. And one of the people that they turned to to prove them right was software engineer Ken Block. And Ken is out front with me now. And Ken, um, I really appreciate uh, uh, speaking to you. And I know you took, you took your, your, your time to figure out if, if it was the right thing to do for you to speak out. But you were hired by Team Trump to investigate voter fraud. And you were focused, I know, on the six key swing states, one of which, of course, we were just talking about, Arizona. So what was the bottom line? From everything you looked at, Ken, did you find the widespread fraud they wanted you to find? Well, thank you for having me on and good evening. And no, uh, in my job looking for voter fraud for the campaign, we didn't find any, we didn't find enough fraud to have impacted the result of any election uh, in any of the swing states that we took a look at. But much more importantly, the campaign asked me to look at claims of fraud that other people were making, uh, and these claims were coming in fast and furious in the 30 days after the election. Uh, my team looked at approximately 15 or so uh, claims, every one of which we were able to prove was uh, false. Every one of which. I mean, and as you say, you were inundated. I guess at one point, maybe a theory a day. I mean, just like coming in from everyone in Trump's orbit. Can you talk at all about which claims stand out to you? Or, you know, when you look back on it now, you know, when they, when they throw the ball into your court, which one of them uh, really stands out to you now? Well, I mean, they were all quite different, honestly, and yeah. they all stood out for, for different reasons. Uh, at the end of the day, if I was going to classify the different fraud claims, some of them were, I believe, honest efforts by people who didn't understand what they were looking at. They misinterpreted data, came up with a wild finding that was bizarre and, and couldn't possibly be right, and that was easy to sort of swat away. Others were uh, literally college professors bringing forward complicated mathematical theories that claim to prove that in one state or another state there was massive amounts of fraud. Uh, and those took a lot more work, not only because I had to hack my way through a pretty dense mathematical theorem, but at the end of it I had to discuss 
with groups of lawyers and campaign consultants and other people who had no idea what I was going to be talking about to describe in layman's terms why uh, this claim that on its face must have been accurate because of where it came from was in fact false. Right, and I mean, and, and I know that has to have been a hard part. I mean, you were, of course, subpoenaed, Ken, by the special counsel Jack Smith in the DOJ investigation, also by District Attorney Fonnie Willis in the Georgia investigation. Uh, you know, and, and one of these is how you and I originally spoke last spring uh, when, when we had a, a conversation. So what did investigators want to know from you? So uh, in both of those legal matters, I'm what's called a fact witness. Yeah. Uh, I was subpoenaed for all of my communications in any form uh, with the Trump campaign in both of those legal matters. Uh, that's been so far the extent of my involvement with uh, both of those investigations and now uh, legal actions. We'll see what develops from this point forward. But so far, I've met, not had to appear in front of a grand jury personally. It's just all the materials that I created that have. And so Trump, even today, three years later, he is still continuing to put these theories out there and to tell people they are true and people still believe them to be true. Millions and millions and millions of people. Here he is just in recent days. I got 75 million votes. I got, and that's their count, okay, which is a phony count. Anytime you have mail-in ballots, you have corrupt elections. They cheat like hell. It's the only thing they do good is they cheat in elections. You know, you said to us, Ken, something that I, I, seemed to me quite profound. You said, never have you believed that finding so little in the way of fraud would mean so much. How do you feel when you continue to hear Trump put things out there to a believing public in many of these cases uh, that, that, that you know are not true, that you yourself investigated? Yeah, so what's happening now is we're seeing individuals and organizations uh, creating a lot of noise about voter fraud, trying to bring forward a new proof that voter fraud has occurred. And all of these efforts, while they claim to be bringing forward proof, aren't providing proof of fraud. Fraud is something that is detectable, something that's quantifiable, and ultimately something that you can verify. Uh, just the other day, there was a poll that purported to provide proof that 20% of all the mail ballots that were cast had some form of fraud attached to them on the, uh, based on the foundation of a telephone poll conducted by a robot, not even by a human being. Uh, and these aren't, these aren't elements of proof, but yet tens of millions of people receive this information. They desperately want to believe that President Trump improperly lost the election, and they're ready to believe it, and they're ready to take action, if asked, to help correct what they believe is a wrong. And one of the main reasons that I'm out here with this book talking about my experiences in looking is to provide the direct evidence. I was paid to look for this fraud. I was paid to vet the fraud in preparation for these cases to go to trial. And this was for a group of attorneys within the campaign who were serious about their jobs and they did their due diligence. That's what I was performing for them. I was providing due diligence. Yeah. I found nothing 
reported that. They took that information, accepted it, reported it up the line to Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff at the time. Mark Meadows then communicated the findings that there were no fraud to the Oval Office. So it has to be told. This story needs to be told. People need to understand what really happened in terms of fraud and to try to understand what actual fraud is as opposed to hearsay evidence, which is most of what people are being told is evidence of fraud. Well, Ken, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I do want everyone to know that your new book uh, coming out is called Disproven. It is available for pre-sale right now. It will be, of course, released early next year. And next, the breaking news. The Texas governor just signing a controversial bill that makes it a state crime to illegally cross the border. Tonight, we'll see what's happening. Plus, Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine, speaking out with a message to Putin that it is time to send them home. Breaking news, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signing a bill that makes entering Texas illegally a state crime. It means local law enforcement now has the ability to arrest migrants and can imprison them and send them back to Mexico. Rosa Flores is out front from the border town of Brownsville, Texas tonight. They're poisoning the blood of our country. Former President Donald Trump's hard-eyed immigration stance echoed in Texas, where Governor Greg Abbott signed into law what the ACLU dubs one of the most radical anti-immigrant bills ever passed by any state. Senate Bill 4 is now law in the state of Texas. SB 4 creates a new state crime for illegal entry into Texas, gives local police the power to arrest, and judges the power to remove violators. But the problem is far more than just numbers. After multiple attempts, the controversial measure passed the Republican-led legislature. It's un-American. I can't drive. But not without a fight by the Democratic minority that erupted into this on the House floor. Y'all don't understand the shit that y'all do hurts our community. After Republicans cut debate short. And y'all don't understand that. Y'all don't live in our skin. That is Texas State Representative Armando Wally from Houston. Como esta, an American with Mexican roots. He says he fears SB4 will lead to the racial profiling of Latinos across Texas. Why do we, and those of us that look like me, why do we have to carry our passports around? The Republican authors of the bill said there was no need to safeguard the measure against racial profiling. Texas has not determined the cost of SB4. Some county governments fear it's an unfunded mandate. We don't agree. Uh, with the cost of being shifted over to our local Texas. I don't agree. Texas Republican Senator Brian Birdwell voted against the measure, saying it's unconstitutional. We are setting a terrible precedent for the future by invalidating our obedience and faithfulness to our Constitution. I believe SB4 is completely constitutional. For Americans outside of Texas, Representative Wally. Wally warns SB4 could be used to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Arizona's 2012 so-called show your papers law, which upheld that immigration is a federal function. This is their roadmap now, now that they have a much favorable Supreme Court. It's not in conflict with the precedent set in Arizona versus U.S. As for Wally, who lost the fight against the law, but was one of the strongest voices against it. It fills me with pride because I've had elderly people today tell me that they were proud that somebody stood up for them, stood up for somebody who didn't have a voice. 
Now, I asked Governor Abbott point blank if he's trying to overturn Arizona versus the United States. And again, that is the 2012 U.S. Supreme Court decision that upheld that immigration is a federal function. Now, Governor Abbott first said that he believes that SB4 stands alone, that it is constitutional. And Aaron, then he said, quote, we also welcome a Supreme Court decision that would overturn the precedent set in the Arizona Mm. case. Aaron only hinting a yes to my question. All right. All right. Absolutely. Rosa, thank you very much in Brownsville tonight. And next, Putin's men on the battlefield are speaking out in a very rare show of dissent. Something you need to hear about because they're saying they're in pain and they want to come home. Special report only here next. Plus breaking news, live pictures out of southwest Iceland where a volcano has just started to erupt. Tonight, brave Russians making a rare public plea to Putin to bring their sons and husbands home from the battlefield. Even some soldiers are speaking out. And Matthew Chance tonight is out front in Moscow. On state television, Russian troops are shown on the rampage. Advancing near Bakhmut in Ukraine, seizing land, they say, and pushing Ukrainian forces back. Their new soldiers don't seem to know what to do, says this Russian commander. But concern over the plight of Russia's own mobilized troops is beginning to stir. Ordinary families with men serving in Ukraine are now pleading for them to return. We just want our husbands and sons to come home, says this woman. A brave call in a country where dissent is barely tolerated. But the partial mobilization of Russians, which began last September, was always an unpopular move, as men were bussed into military service. Hundreds of thousands more fled the country to avoid the draft. Many of those sent to Ukraine are still there. Alexander. Men like Alexander from Voronezh, who says he was drafted in January this year. Now he wants home. We're all so tired, he says in this social media post. Our backs and knees hurt. No one cares about the money or the benefits, he says. We just want to be allowed home. Everyone really wants that. The Kremlin is in no mood to ease off this war. With USA to Ukraine blocked in Congress, there's a feeling here Western resolve may crumble. Bolstering Vladimir Putin as he registers to stand virtually unopposed for yet another presidential term. That which divides us must be put aside, Putin insists in his first campaign speech. Russia will be sovereign or not there at all, he adds. (laughs) Among Putin's hardline supporters, and there are many, the prospect of his continued reign is being celebrated. We don't need any other president, one of them shouts. But New Year's celebrations elsewhere are muted. Bring my husband back, bring my dad home, say the festive messages on this tree. The year is drawing to an end. But Russia's conflict in Ukraine drags on. 
And Erin, and as Ukraine is now warning that it will cut back on its military operations because of a, dro a drop off in international aid, including from the United States, Russia is doubling down, saying it's going to step up its activity on the battlefield until such times as President Putin says all of its war aims have been achieved. Well, all right. Thank you very much. Matthew Chance, as I said, he is live in Moscow this evening. And breaking news next, live images out of Iceland. A volcano is right now, as I speak, erupting. Lava is spewing hundreds of feet into the air. These are live images, and we'll be right back. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 